0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined by the crew. We are recording this live on Thursday on Twitter Spaces and probably somewhere else on the internet. And guys, we're here. We've made it. Natasha, hello.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm growing a beard, so I am itchy.
1: (laughs) What what inspired the beard? I I have to know.
0: My, (laughs) My brother started to grow a beard and asked me if I'd ever tried and I said, no. And I look like a person who got lost in the woods. I like it longer than they should Snazzy have been. Snazzy
2: as hell. No, I like it. I like it. It gives you an edgy look, Alex. It makes <laughs> you look more edgy.
0: The squarest person in the whole world finally looks edgy. Marianne, how are you doing?
2: I am great. I am really good. Thank you, Alex.
0: I'm glad to hear that. That is the most positive hello we've had in a while. So I'm proud of us. This is, this is the summer impact. We're feeling good. But before we talk about what we're doing, we have seen essentially a return to form in the news cycle. So we're feeling Mm -hmm. good, which is good because there's been a lot more going on. Marianne, it feels like the summer lull has passed us.
2: Yeah, yeah. There was like two, three weeks there of really slow news cycle, not getting many pitches, not just not a lot of interesting stuff going on, to be honest with you. And then all of a sudden... Like in the past week, everything has just ramped up very suddenly and my inbox is flooded again and there's actually some interesting stuff in there. And I'm not sure what, you know, are people back from vacation or what's going on, but definitely seeing things ramp back up.
0: You know, Natasha, we were hearing from VCs on Twitter and in phone calls that essentially, oh my gosh, September was going to be the month where things picked back up, but it appears to be really August. Oh
1: my God, totally. And now I've brought up moving like twice within one minute of this episode, but I will say this week, I just had this feeling that there was going to be more news because it's a chaotic life week. And then of course, within like an hour, Robinhood laid off 23% of its staff. Rose co-founder stepped back and YC shrunk its batch size. Some of those news ends we'll get to, but it just was like this crazy one hour of like breaking news in the early stage world. And I guess late stage too, because it's Robinhood and that's a late stage. So.
0: Well, I mean, Robinhood's public row is somewhere between late stage and public. I mean, everything's been happening all at once. Yes. So What are we talking about today? Well, we have our usual three deals of the week. We're going to talk about Previ. Attitude Ventures. I don't know how to pronounce that, Marianne. We'll ask you about that in a minute. And then Braxia buying Keta MD, because I have always wanted to say Ketamine on the show more often. So here we are. <laughs> and then we're gonna riff on Robinhood layoffs and what's going on in the world of fintech. Then we will talk about why combinator and shrinking batch sizes, why combinator has been a theme on the show for a long time because of how big and important it is. And now the question is: is it as big and as important? And then we're gonna close off with Uber Ooh. and why free cash flow matters. So if you don't like accounting things. You're safe until the end of the episode. At that point, you should run away like a cat that has been scalded. <laughs> but let's start with deals of the week. Where are we kicking off, Natasha? Which deals first?
1: Yeah, well, I thought it would be fun for us to start off with well, with, with ketamine because that's something that we get to do too often right. on the show. Alex, why is this your deal of the week? And talk to us about what's happening here.
0: Well, I love a small acquisition. Because I feel like they are often not discussed in enough detail. And they're a key way that startups do find liquidity. I mean, not every company goes public, not every company sells to, you know, Microsoft for a billion dollars. And so in this case, we have Braxia Scientific, which is based out in Toronto. And they're focused on mental health and especially issues, you know, depression, suicidality, that sort of thing. And they're buying a company called Keta MD, which deals with, as you can imagine, ketamine treatments for mental health issues for around $6 million. And KetaMD, just in case you didn't know, is based in Florida. So if you haven't paying more attention to the Florida startup scene, here is a deal for you. Now, the actual setup here isn't as important as the deal happening, but KetaMD does telehealth and provides ketamine treatments where they're legal. And I think that we are now seeing enough noise from the world of alternative mental health-focused treatments that this now really does feel not like an emerging trend per se, but actually now like kind of part of the new normal conversation around mental health, Marianne, and how we're taking kind of a broader approach as a species towards taking care of ourselves.
2: I mean, I'm all for that. I have to admit, though, I had to read up on ketamine and understand a little bit better exactly what it is, what it does and what role it could play in helping people who might be anxious or depressed. So why don't you, Alex, since you seem to understand it better than I, like tell our audience exactly what is ketamine?
0: Ah. Ketamine is a drug that you probably heard about from your European friends and then became popular in the Bay Area because everyone had too much money. But much like how you might take a medication for ADHD that might be recreational in a different context, ketamine, while also a recreational drug, does have some very strong positive impacts on people that have things like very persistent depression. And so it is a treatment that is showing some positive signs. The issue is whenever you have a drug, Marianne, that has a recreational component or edge to it, it tends to be more joke than thought of as an actual treatment. And so in this case, I'm not going to get into the actual chemistry because I would make a fool of myself, but I think it's just great to see real progress towards bringing a drug that may help a lot of people in stuck places do better. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Completely hear you. I think it's like the the point you just made about things like not being taken seriously. We see the same thing with like shrooms and how those are being used to deal with mental health issues. And so you're laughing, but uh, don't call them shrooms. Then I mean, I feel like I don't need to call them by their full name to take them seriously, (laughs) but I, I, I think that, That's another example of like a type of alternative medicine that maybe won't be as alternative if we see these acquisitions continue to go through. And then the last thing I'll say about this deal that struck me was, you know, it's a patient centric acquisition in telehealth, which feels like a very important thing to be doing right now as telehealth startups are struggling. I've covered Roe, like I said, throughout, and I think for them, a lot of their pitch has been we're going to bring direct to consumer healthcare. We know how hard it is, even when you're a super well capitalized company.
0: Yeah. And to me, there's kind of an ed tech vibe to this because we saw a lot of companies in the ed tech space really enjoy an enormous tailwind in the pandemic. And then now we've seen that kind of come down. Also, there's some Robinhood parallels in the telehealth space because Robinhood also had an amazing COVID run and has since kind of come back down to earth. And I think that might be Natasha, why this deal is worth six, $7 million versus 15 to 20 or let alone 50. I think telehealth is kind of in a, in a difficult spot, but I think we all agree as patients, telehealth is great. I just think we haven't figured out how to pay for it yet inside of the American healthcare system. Right. Not a smaller problem, Marianne, but we need to move on. I want to talk about Attitude Ventures, or as it's spelled, La Attitude Ventures. Why is there an L and a little like apostrophe in this name? Um,
2: Good question. I'm not sure, but I assume (laughs) it has to do with the fact that the fund is backing Latino or Latina founders, the early stage companies here in the US. So I assume the L relates to Latino or Latina. So yeah, this was an exciting story. I was impressed i guess with the caliber i guess ah. of investors lps and partners in this fund this is a 100 million dollar fund that just closed and jp morgan chase was the anchor Ooh. lp bank of america was also an lp we've got royal bank of canada mass mutual cisco a lot of very large organizations and institutions backing this effort. And interestingly, Oscar Munoz is a former chairman and CEO of United Airlines. He's also a partner. So we have some very high profile partners here. And what they want to do is they really want to help back Latino and Latina founders here in the U.S. They're focused on the U.S., not on LATAM. And they feel like this is one of the things I thought was really interesting, that it's not just about, oh, you know, we want to help Fund this underrepresented population. No, they like there's opportunity here. You know, they're saying that here's a quote, Latino, Latino owned companies enjoy a built in relationship with a rising generation of young US Latino consumers investing in their early growth promises strong returns on investment for the next 30 to 40 years at a minimum. Wow. And Oscar Muniz says he calls this rising generation of Latino Americans the single biggest market since the baby boomer generation. So there's a lot of opportunity here and they see it. So I'm here for it. I think this is super exciting.
1: I love that you pointed out the LP list because I think that is definitely like a huge signal to dig into. I saw like JP Morgan was this anchor investor. And it's kind of interesting because JP Morgan has kind of ruffled a lot of feathers over the past few months with its involvement in funding diverse entrepreneurs. For example, when Backstage Capital laid off majority of their staff, Arlen Hamilton said that part of the reason was LPs dropping out, and J.P. Morgan apparently, per her, told her that Backstage Capital wasn't far along enough for an investment. Mm, On the other right. hand, Techstar's multicultural startup accelerator programs are also anchored by J.P. Morgan. And so I feel like this mm-hmm. LP is doing a lot in different ways, and yeah. I would be so curious to hear what they have to say about what their bar is. This is another example of them backing it. diverse focused investment firm. That's interesting. I want to take this in a
0: less serious direction, which is that Oscar Munoz, the uh, former CEO of United, is to blame for every time I think that I was stranded on United (laughs) Airlines when I was flying back and forth across the country a lot. So I'm excited to see Oscar has moved on to something else because (laughs) even though I am a dedicated United customer, I'm also a dedicated United (laughs) hater. And I don't know what that says about me or American Airlines, but it's always fun to see people pop up in different areas. Also, I mean, Oscar, I mean, we joke, had a number of roles as a CFO. Mm -hmm. One of those business careers you kind of look at and you're like, oh, damn, that's impressive. Impressive. So fun to see yeah. him involved with this. But let's talk about our third deal of the week, which is Prevy And Natasha, I now need you to explain to me why I would ever grant someone else access to my paycheck.
1: Cashback. That is Previ's whole promise and premise. It's a new fintech started by the co-founder of Weave, which went public last year based in Utah. And its whole pitch is that we're going to automatically deduct are sending expenses directly from our check. As a result for doing that, we're going to get higher cash back. So let's say if you pay with your credit card, you might get 2 or 3% cash back. Probably wants to land partnerships that would get you up to 20 to 30% cash back. And it's starting really with, I wouldn't say like, we're going to automatically deduct how much you spend on Chipotle. That's always my go-to example for some reason. Yeah, I, I, why? Do you go to I Chipotle a lot? You live in no, San Francisco. I just, I simply don't Do I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> me being relatable. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's not like, I wouldn't say it's like for your small, cute purchases. It's for something like a phone bill, which exists Mm. every month. It's a solid chunk of money. And what if you can just tack it onto your paycheck along with your 401k contributions and get a higher cash back as a result of that? And so that's kind of its pitch. I'll stop there. There are so many questions about Previ. I found it super interesting to write about as a result.
0: I have one question. So I get more cash back because let's say, okay, I'm a Verizon customer. I pay Verizon every month, some amount of money for my my spouse's phone lines. I use Previ. I put that onto my pay Check versus my checking account on yeah. a regular thing. And does Verizon want to offer cash back to me via Previ because they're upstream more in my income stream and therefore they're more likely to get paid?
1: Exactly. It's a kind of a stickier customer to get. And so I would say it's like this lower customer acquisition costs Ah. added in with the fact that you're less likely to churn if it's coming directly and automatically, which I know depending on our personal financial habits, automatic deductions can either feel really good or really bad. Marianne, I'm curious where you stand on if it's something that you would use or if you (laughs) like choosing where each dollar goes and no shade Either way. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, sort of like Alex, my first thought is I'm not sure the comfort level of like letting any company have access to my paycheck like that does make me a little uncomfortable. So I am wondering like how it's going to win people over from that respect.
1: Yeah. I asked that question to the founder as well. I was like, what is the biggest challenger? And they're like, obviously it's trust, right? But mm. the same way we can connect, let's say like 5% of our paycheck to our savings account to go directly into savings each month, he's kind mm. of betting on that same customer habit Obviously, like Bank of America sounds a lot different than a venture-backed startup in the seed stage. But I guess I felt a little better when I realized that Previ doesn't have access to our paycheck in its entirety, but instead a percent that we choose mm. to give it, a little okay. bit more of a protection which I feel better about. I would hate for someone to be able to see exactly where each percent of my paycheck goes. And I don't want the future to look like that at all. (laughs) That's good to know,
2: though. That's important.
0: Can I just say that I think crypto is kind of spoiling the pond here for other fintech companies? Because every day, it seems like I read about major crypto fiasco, you know, Bridge got drained for $100 million or someone rugged an L2 and now no (laughs) one's got their ETH or wrapped ETH or whatever. And it's always bad news in the world of crypto because there's so much fraud and hacking. I think that's made me just more afraid about linking my accounts to anything. Mm-hmm. Like I just want to kind of Fort Knox it and stack gold bars under the bed to a degree because you can't steal those. So I wonder if there's kind of a spillover effect from web three to the web it makes stuff like this a little bit less attractive to regular folks. It's a
1: good point. That, yeah, that is a good point. One thing that we were talking about with Danny a few months ago on equity was, I guess like a year ago, he's been not been here for a while, but he framed it really well once, which was like every FinTech's dream is to own the paycheck because that is where consumers spend their money literally. And so Alex, as you described that, I'm like, maybe it isn't the goal to be the person that's sitting on the paycheck because that requires so much kind of buy-in. I would love to see that change. And maybe that's the follow-up story
0: here. Well, I mean, we'll see people use it because they love cash back. And there's a lot of folks out there who really adore cash back. I mean, people like to do that credit card, balance moving around like at maximum right. points and stuff because they don't have a real hobby, if you will.
1: <laughs> it, I, it, I.
0: <laughs> it, oh, now I feel bad. I, <laughs> sorry, Natasha. It's much more fun to make fun of someone who's not here versus like your friend who's staring at you on Zoom. Okay, let's, uh, let's just take one minute and just do this. Natasha, why do you enjoy that kind of financial engineering? Because to me, it's literally akin to pulling my teeth out with a wrench.
1: Wait, okay. Maybe I don't fit into the exact character description you described where I'm moving money around to get points. But like, I am a point, what's the appropriate word to use? The oriented junkie. person? Yes. Point junkie. <laughs> point, point, point oriented. I'll go point oriented. I love points. And I feel like I will pick Lyft over Uber because I have Lyft points. So that's who I am. And I, I don't think that's crazy. What, what are you describing?
0: You know, the folks who go to like the points guy and like, you know, are trying to like maximize their flights and they're like, no, let me put this on my Chase Sapphire because it's Tuesday yeah. after 9 PM. Yes so you do that?
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Guilty discharge. It feels amazing <laughs> to save even $5. So there's oh, that. Man. Okay. I get that. We can't I invest in the t- stock market as journalists. You? So yes, Index funds. I mean, okay, we can't invest in stocks as journalists. So this is the way that I win, but let's talk about the stock market <laughs> yeah, in our next section. Let's talk about the stock market.
0: Let's talk about Robinhood, a company that has been in the news for, I mean, Mary, it feels like 18 months now, nonstop. Shall we start with your poll or shall we? Start start with the news.
2: Let's start with the news. So the poll will have some context.
0: All right. So Robinhood's back in the news this week, because once again, they have found the chopping block and put it to work. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Specifically, they laid off 23% of the staff this week. That is an estimated about 713 employees, which is a lot. It's the second workforce reduction that the company has implemented this year. Earlier, what was it late April? They cut 9% of staff. So
1: Pretty big deal. Yeah, and like just math-wise, right? The fact that they did that first cut and then they cut more of that, I think nearly double, yeah, nearly double, almost triple the amount of a uh, percentage-wise to me. This is me talking about math, but it was just kind of like this huge change in like just months of how many people they need in order to like extend runway, it seems, or be able to go through this, which was just shocking to me to see such a dramatic cut. Yeah. Well another
0: another part of this is that they just they hired with the expectation that there was gonna be more demand. So you need more customer support, you need more marketing people, you need more blah, 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 blah. And if you have just less overall, commerce on your platform, no matter what it is, your staffing needs are lower. But doing two rounds of layoffs is real bad. Mm-hmm. And I, if I'm getting this right, I was talking to Spencer Skates, the CEO of Amplitude. They went public last year, yesterday after earnings for his company. And we were just riffing about planning and you know how he's approaching the rest of the year and spend. And he's like, you know, look, a lot of people that hired aggressively last year when we were being more conservative are going through you know one and even two rounds of layoffs, which is like the worst thing. And he's right. Mm-hmm. If you want to kill morale do two rounds of layoffs in quick succession. Like if you have to cut, everyone says do it once. But I wonder if things just got even worse than they expected.
2: I mean, I have a few thoughts on this. For one, this reminds me a little bit of Peloton, right? Like where they just didn't plan well or just got overestimated the pandemic impact on their business. And they just went crazy with hiring. And another interesting part of all this that we, we covered is that the CEO Vlad Tenev, yep. in a blog post, uh, pretty much took responsibility for Robinhood's overhiring frenzy in 2021. He said it was done under the assumption that the heightened retail engagement would continue in 2022. Clearly, it didn't. He said that the earlier round of layoffs this year did not go far enough. And he went on to blame the continued deterioration of the macro environment and inflation, admitting this has reduced customer trading activity and assets under custody. So as we had in the headline, he pretty much, he said, point blank, this is on me.
1: Yeah, I mean... That was a lot. We'll get into the poll that you did on Twitter because I think that's important to gauge on what people think that meant. Mm -hmm. But before that, just the very difficulty of choosing how many people to lay off Not necessarily being overly empathetic to a founder during this moment, but I do want to like kind of say it's pretty hard to probably gauge as a founder how many people you need to cut. And so the fact that we're seeing so many double reductions, I have a story about that coming out hopefully today. And then him saying, giving an example, it didn't go deep enough to me. was just kind of like a reminder that things are changing so fast that they had to cut twice. And it's a mistake, don't get me wrong. It just seems like a really hard mistake to avoid too. I imagine a lot of other founders are also thinking about this right Mm. now.
0: I mean, following up on Natasha's, let's not be too nice to people, but also trend <laughs> Coinbase. I mean, if you think back to the start of the year, they're like, we're hiring aggressively, forget the crash, whatever. Then they were, we're going to slow hiring. Then it was, we're pulling offers. Then they did layoffs. Right. And that was within, I forget the exact, but a four month period, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. And so I think that there has been a lot of surprise on the people in the world of supporting consumer trades for various assets, Robinhood, mostly equities and options, Coinbase, mostly crypto, but they're not unique uniquely making this error. It seems to be more common. And I wonder if it's partially just translating from the 2021 mindset to the 2022 reality. And that just being something that takes a couple of months to sort out. And you may be not conservative enough early on because you don't think that things will get as bad as they end up getting, which is not a huge diss. I mean, no one's an Oracle, right? right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean,
2: I, I think that, yeah. Things really turned a corner pretty sharply. We all saw this downturn coming, but it just went full speed ahead, and so it's not shocking that a lot of companies were sort of left scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, preserve cash, and, and runway.
1: Um, go ahead, Natasha. Oh, sorry, I was just going to add into breaking news, which is that On Deck has just had another round of of layoffs. Oh, wow! And so another example of a company having to cut twice. We'll work on a story about that after the show. But yeah,
0: I, weren't you already doing that? Yeah. Okay. So
1: the news just beat me. Um, Need to do that after. But anyways, (laughs) let's talk about a little bit about the sentiment around this. Marianne, what have you kind of been hearing from people?
2: Yeah. I just, after we wrote this story together, Natasha, which by the way, I love when we all can collaborate in articles. Yeah. So I got to thinking like, how do people perceive when a CEO makes this sort of public statement, taking responsibility for job cuts? So I put out a poll on Twitter two, three days ago. We got Nearly 300 votes. And I was asking, did you view Vlad's <laughs> words as a rare display of humility or something else? And if so, what? 63.1% said something else. 36.9% said display of humility. I mean, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Brutal.
2: Yeah. Now, there was a lot of <laughs> interesting responses. is incompetence and option was one. Another was I view it as at least on that point, he's getting good coaching. Another person, isn't a CEO taking responsibility the bare minimum? As a CEO, everything is, quote, on you. So there was actually quite a lot of interesting feedback to that poll.
0: I think that person's correct taking responsibility is the bare minimum we should expect from CEOs. So However, true. given that we normally do not see the bare minimum, in this case, I will award Vlad five points because <laughs> he did go ahead and take responsibility for it. He didn't trot out the VP of human resources to discuss how something, something, something needs a reduction in force. You know, showing up and owning it is the right thing to do. And I will award points for at least meeting minimum requirements.
2: Yeah, and I know we need to move on. So I'll just say I I agree with you, Alex. We don't 100% know how sincere it was, but certainly there's been a lot of layoffs over the past six to eight months. Better.com is one example. And clearly many CEOs have not stepped up and taken responsibility or in like better.com's case, blaming the employees for what happened. So like kudos to him for at least, you know, making the effort Again, we don't know how sincere it was, but not all CEOs do that. So agree with you, Alex.
1: I want to jump outside of the layoff world and just contextualize within Robinhood's really hard year as a company. And Alex, I know you've been looking through their numbers a lot. How do you place this? Like Expected, not expected, maybe that's not the best question to ask, but we'll just love like a timeline or temp check.
0: Yeah. So go back in time a long ways. In the old days, you to like pick up the phone, call your broker and like execute a trade over the phone. And they would like charge you out the nose for it. And then in the nineties with the internet, we suddenly had a way to have discount brokerages. You could pay eight, 10 bucks a trade. It was revolutionary. Then Robinhood came along and said, Hey, you know what? what if we had zero cost trades and we'll just make money off payment for order flow. And there's pros and cons to that model, but it was a revolution in bringing financial trading to the masses or as Robinhood would say, investing. Now, The company then got a huge boost when the pandemic hit and we saw savings and investing kind of like wave. A lot of people were staying home, not traveling, had more cash and they were bored. And so they got busy. They got busy on Robinhood. They got busy on Coinbase. They got busy on eToro and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In one finance, so many companies had this moment of four to six quarters of insane growth And then the world changed. We started going back outside again. And suddenly people didn't want to buy meme stocks. They wanted to buy lunch with friends at restaurants. And then suddenly Robinhood was on the other side of this coin, right after going public, actually nailed the timing there. Well done. Mm, Seriously, Raised a bunch of money. And then now they're dealing with essentially the hangover of a very long and interesting party. So we're seeing lawsuits regarding crypto transactions. We're seeing, I think, some shareholder lawsuits. And the company is now going through multiple rounds of layoffs. So this is their period of sorrow. But really, we shouldn't be surprised because the same things that were going up due to artificial reasons would eventually come back down. And this is why I think companies like Robinhood and Coinbase will be valued more like gaming companies that have periods of hits and periods of troughs yeah. than software companies, which are more durable and never really report year-over-year revenue declines.
1: I love when you create a illustration that really mm-hmm. takes us through it. But this is why companies should stop drinking and, and not experience these hangovers. Yeah, it's, it's a really tough company to like, be following because I just feel like there is news every day, but I felt like that was this really succinct explanation.
0: All right, let's move on in the honor of time and talk about Natasha's favorite organization in the world. Woo. They're always willing to come on Equity. We love <laughs> Y Combinator because they're so <laughs> open lately. Natasha, what's going on with them?
1: <gasps> to be fair, YC is getting back to me right now. Yes, it's it's on, on a response is on the route on if they're going to join us on Equity. If people want to tweet at Y Combinator and at Equity Pod to get them to come on Equity, I think we would very much appreciate it. If I can speak for all of us. Yeah, they used to
0: come on the show every demo day. It was great. Michael Siebel would come on. We'd learn a lot. Fun times.
1: Well, it's a different cohort in YC world, this cohort. So it's their first in-person in a long time and it's their smallest in a long time. So... Kate Clark from The Information, former equity pod host, broke the news earlier this week that YC narrowed its current cohort size by 40% compared to prior batches. So YC's summer 2022 cohort is at 250 companies, down from its last cohort of 414 companies. When I reached out to Lindsay Amos, their head of comms, she kind of provided the statement that said that it's very much attributed to economic downturn, changes to venture funding environment, and did confirm to me that it wasn't because of a drop in applications. It was in fact a record year in applications. So they're really framing it around the fact that it was an intentional scale back. Mm. What do you guys think?
0: Well, I see some logic in it. Marianne, if you are expecting there to be fewer next rounds out there in the market, you may want to launch fewer startups into the world because you might probably want to right size your cohort to the venture landscape is my guess.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the organization was already kind of getting I don't know if flack is the right word, but for making the cohorts so outsized to begin with, like it was just making it harder and harder for companies to stand out. There was, you know, it just wasn't quite the same when you had so many different companies like presenting. And so it kind of to me, it's just similar to everything that's happening right now. It's like things kind of went crazy and people went nuts and then they're like, oh, oh, wait a minute, we really need to step back.
0: Yeah, especially pulling back when I think we need more seed funding is kind of a strange moment. But Natasha, I'm curious if this matches up with what you're hearing from early stage investors. Are they seeing a downturn of, I don't know, similar size to warrant this kind of production in cohort sizes at YC?
1: No one agrees with Anyone. There are the investors who very much are like, I have never been busier. And then there are investors who said that their deal flow has dropped by 90%. And so I think like squaring out that disconnect is really interesting. YC is somewhat related here because it is saying like they have never had more interest applications wise, but they are choosing to slow down their cadence. But you know, to me, it's going to be a hard experiment to distill certain takeaways from because, like I said, like YC is changing so many things during this batch alongside having a smaller cohort size. It's bigger checks, it's in person. I feel like I I wish I had a better science background, but like, it feels like the test case is getting like way too many different factors that we can't have like a good comparison It's an experiment with too many variables. That's (laughs) exactly what I meant. Like, what am I doing today? Thank you, Marianne. Mm -hmm.
0: Marianne, not only our resident Grammy award winning songwriter, but also our in-house scientist. Needed it. (laughs) She can do it all. Ladies and gentlemen, um, One last note before we jump on to Uber really quickly is that I'm curious to see what a reduced cohort size does to the diversity in both geographic and other terms that we track. Because if suddenly, for example, like the number of startups in India or Africa drops by like 80%, bummer. So I'll be curious to see what it looks like. I mean, I don't know. I have no data yet, but that's what comes Mm -hmm. to mind.
1: I am hearing that the investment in India has dropped a ton. And so I think that's something that we should follow up on. I guess I'm giving away one of our stories, but that is something I'm looking into. But I think it's a really important point that we have to include in this conversation, which is YC has struggled with diversity, surprisingly, Mm -hmm. as it's expanded its cohort sizes. A smaller one, some would think, could either really help it, but historically, we don't know how it's going to look.
0: Historically, we do know. But the question is, will it break with historical patterns and do better? Okay, speaking about breaking with historical patterns and doing better, <gasps> guess which company made free cash flow Merry in Q2? Merry Christmas, Alex. Brrr, <laughs> It was Uber. That was a good one. <laughs> I, that was an accidental segue back right into that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just, I, I, look, I've been tracking Uber's financials Forever. And this has been one of those moments that I've been kind of looking forward to for so long. And Uber did have positive free cash flow in the second quarter, a moment that I think indicates that the company can now self fund for the foreseeable future. There's no more need for debt, no more need for equity financing. The company has turned the corner after a tough couple of years, Marianne. I mean, I was impressed. I mean, I'm curious, what was your vibe?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, I too was impressed until I was reading the article and saw that the company is deeply unprofitable in the second quarter, it lost $2.6 <laughs> $2. billion. So my brain kind of exploded a little bit since I'm not as good at financial stuff as you are. Help me understand or help our listeners understand how can a company have free cash flow and yet be so, so deeply unprofitable?
0: That's a great question, Marianne. I'm going to try to do this and not make it incredibly boring. So here we go. There's two ways to think about a company's profitability. One is on a cash basis, only dollars in, dollars out, or euros in, euros out, yen, yuan, whatever you want. The other one is kind of in full accounting terms. And so when we talk about net income or net losses, we're referring to a specific number that is derived via generally accepted accounting principles in the US or GAAP or IFERS over in Europe. And essentially that can include non-cash costs. So if I, let's say I form a company and I have two employees, Natasha and Marianne, and I award you each $10 million in equity compensation per year, I would have to put that into the overall spend of the company and that would impact my profitability, but not my cash flow. And so when a company is growing quickly, you care a little bit more about how it's doing in a cash basis than a accounting profit basis, because you're only thinking about how much money you to put into the company to keep the growth going. But when a company matures, you care a lot more about its entire cost profile. So in the case of Uber, you probably do care about how much money is paying out in share-based comp, because that's effective dilution for its existing shareholders. They're paying in the form of dilution for a lot of their employee activity. Now there's other stuff that goes on as well. Uber has a lot of investments around the world. I think we might, Talk about Zamato in a second. And when those have dramatic price changes, they have to record that as an other expense, which impacts their operating income to get us closer to a net number. So, in the case of Uber, in this quarter, their operating loss was $713 million. Then they had an interest expense of $139 million. Then they had other expenses of $1.7 billion, which were effectively a loss in value of investments that they had. And that all added up to the $2.6 billion number. So yes, on one hand, Uber looks incredibly unprofitable, and it is. And on the other hand, it's less unprofitable than ever before. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs>
1: okay. I was I was trying, as you were explaining that, I was trying to think of like a Froyo metaphor that we could use. Ah. And I don't know if you have one, but I think I was getting closer and then I kind of didn't get it at all. So just being honest with what I was thinking of as you were explaining
0: <laughs> that. <laughs> I'm I'm really trying here. Uh, free cash flow is like tart yogurt, but gap is like putting fruit on top of your fruit. No, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> it's y- too you can't make accounting fun. You just cannot <laughs> do it. Like I just droned I guarantee you everyone on the Twitter space right now is like, shut the f- No,
2: not at all. Not at all. Thank you. for. I actually learned a lot and I appreciate that, Alex. But another thing I found interesting about the results that during the pandemic, the food delivery side of their business was like way up. But now that we're getting back to normal life, it's ride hailing business. Gross bookings rose by like 120 percent, while food delivery gross bookings only went up by about 7 percent. So I thought that was interesting. But they're both like about the same in terms of bookings, right? Like ride hailing and delivery are about 13 some billion each, right?
0: Yeah, so essentially in uh, Q2, 2021 Uber had 8.6 billion in gross bookings from ride hailing, the total value of rides on its platform in that three month period. During that quarter, it did 12.9 billion in gross bookings for its food delivery service. Only two thirds of which came from me ordering Mexican food every (laughs) single day. And then in the most recent quarter, the numbers were 13.4 billion for mobility and 13.9 billion for food delivery. So they really did reach effective parity Mm -hmm. and that's a change. And so suddenly Uber is back to being actually a company driven by growth in driving.
1: Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk? thunk? It's like kind of like a, it's a new data point for like the pandemic story that we've been covering, which is like, Mm -hmm. it's usually just like a drop. I kind of like nerded out over the fact that it finally changed spots Mm -hmm. because it just felt like it's a new chapter for the company. So yeah, that was something that got me super excited when I was reading about it.
0: Aim. Yeah. And it's a good news for Lyft because Lyft only has a driving business, doesn't do delivery. I don't know what it means for DoorDash, which is mostly delivery and not rides. So we kind of have some differentiation in the American market to keep tabs on. But my dear friends, I think we have gone over our target time. So we should probably shut up, but we will be back on Monday morning. We will be back next Wednesday. We are not live next week because we're live right now, but catch us on your favorite podcasting apps. All right. Appreciate you all. Bye everybody. <laughs>